Uh, I want to just say a special welcome this morning, knowing that on a day like today, we'll have some visitors. Uh, my name is Christian. Very thankful that you're here. Renaissance Church is a place where we want, every time we gather, we want it to be a time when the people who come together are able to see Jesus. Uh, that's our main goal and our hope. We, we want that because we're convinced that seeing Jesus is the best thing. Uh, when a person sees Jesus, they grow. They grow to follow him. And that's also what we want to be about, a community where people are seeing Jesus and growing as his followers, and then growing in such a way that they go out into the world to show others what Jesus is like. In a word, we want to be a community where we are making Jesus visible. I wonder how many of you have someone in your life who's helped you see what Jesus is like. Do some of you have someone like that? I hope so. Uh, for me, uh, there are a number that stand out, but I think today especially of my mom. Uh, not just because it's Mother's Day, uh, but thinking of her, I think of a person whose strength of character and her wisdom and her graciousness and kindness uh, have helped me see what God is like as uh, she's here in the service. I love my mom. Uh, I spoke last week about my dad too. Uh, many of us have parents that we're really grateful for. And if that's you, be thankful in your heart for them. Um, some of us have wounds around our parents too. Uh, you can ask God to heal that. Uh, some of us who are not parents who are here do not miss the fact that God puts us in community with others so that we can be like a mom and like a dad to the people that are around us. Don't we all need people like that? What? <laughs> we need each other. We need each other. And the calling that we have before us, which is the calling to make Christ visible is a profound invitation to have a purpose in life that's truly divine in size. Uh, it may not have been told to you before, but God has a calling for every one of us. And that calling is to walk through life in such a way that the way we carry ourselves with our families, with our friends, that actually has the impact of making Jesus visible to others. Uh, this is not an idea which uh, I have invented in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul addresses a community with these words. And this is kind of our motto for these spring months. He tells them, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In Paul's mind, it's a given that you have been called to make Christ visible, to live in a way that others can see Christ when they look at you. Now that seems maybe like too grand a thing, but it's not. In everyday life, in ordinary things, in the steps that you will take this afternoon and tomorrow, you all have the freedom to walk in such a way that the way you live actually makes Jesus more plain to the people around you, and that's what God wants. Uh, the contours of that kind of life are described in what follows. In Ephesians 4, 2, Paul describes it like this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, these six characteristics are the way that Paul envisions a life that makes Christ visible. Last week, we talked about what it looks like to walk in humility. This week, this single word, gentleness. Uh, if you choose to walk through life in a way that is gentle with your spouse and with your children with your coworkers and your neighbors, 
with the strangers that you bump into. According to Paul, you will be living a life that is worthy of the calling to make Jesus visible. I want to start with some clarity about the meaning of the word that is translated there, gentleness. Uh, Often it's rendered with the more religious sounding word meekness. If you have an older Bible, you will have heard that word meek, that you should be meek. When you hear that word meek, what comes to mind for you? Uh, In general, we think of that word as descriptive of a person who's feeble, easily imposed on, uh, someone who has no spine, they lack strength, they're able to be taken advantage of, they're easily overcome by resistance, no courage or confidence. We think of George McFly from Back to the Future. Do you know that movie? If you don't, just watch it again. It's better in, in 2018 than it was in the 80s. It's a good one. But that... That is not what Paul means by gentleness here. Uh, the, the, the fact of, of the matter, this word gentle would have rung in the ears of the recipients of this letter, first and foremost, not as a lack of power, but rather it would have struck them that this gentleness is strength which is restrained. And that's the first sense that Paul means to give us when he's teaching us how to live in a way that shows Jesus. Be restrained with the strength that is in fact yours. You may not believe you have much strength. If you trust Jesus, if you believe in God and trust Jesus, the power of God is inside of you at every moment. You have all the power that anyone could ever have. But the call to walk gently is a call to restrain that power. Imagine a river, a wide and deep river that's moving slowly. It has immense strength. Water that is moving is extremely powerful, but it's restrained by the banks. It can only flow this way. That is what proutus in Greek means. It's power which is restrained, first of all. Uh, There's more to the word. Uh, It happens also to be a cognate for a word that in Greek means affable. Uh, Mild, mannered, and steady in such a way that you are a person who is approachable. And that's a second sense in which Paul wants us to see what it would look like to live in a way that shows Jesus. To be a person who restrains our power in such a way that people know that it's safe to come to us. Have you ever encountered a person who's got lots of power, but it's not safe to go to them? They're not approachable? Uh, Imagine the opposite, someone who's strong, but is welcoming and controlled in a way that you know they're safe and you want to go to them. They're someone that you'd like to be around. Uh, They've given you the sense that to be with them is not dangerous. It's safe and good. That's the second sense that this word functions. Uh, The third fact about this word gentleness, proutus in Greek, is that it comes from the word family prowess, which literally in Greek means friend. And so Paul also wants us to think when we hear this word gentle of what it looks like to be friendly. And that is quite, that's a simple word, right? But it's, it's quite simply a quality and a characteristic that the world needs more of right now. Your world needs more of it, right? You need to have more people around you who are not only strong and approachable, but just plain friendly. Uh, Someone who's going to be thinking of you. Someone who has your best interest at heart. Someone who you want to be around because when you're with them, they build you up. They give you a sense of your own value. They make you feel good. 
That also is the quality in gentleness that Paul urges when he says very simply that our calling is to make Jesus visible. And we'll do that when we walk through life gently, when we are restrained in our power, when we are approachable, when we're friendly. And now, am I right to assume that all of you are always gentle in this way? Why are you laughing? Is it, are you laughing because the person who's next to you sometimes explodes in anger at you for no good reason? Don't say yes too loud. That's <laughs> offensive. What if we all agreed right now to put our own image aside and just to be honest that more than we wish, we find ourselves not exhibiting this kind of gentleness but losing it? Let's admit that. Uh, and let's admit it for this reason, okay? Listen. All of us need to grow and change. All of us, right? When you are erupting in anger, when you're losing it, you don't like you, right? You regret it. And when you're behaving like that, the people around you don't like you either. You know that, right? And that's true for all of us here. So literally every one of us can grow a bit today. Let's not worry about what others think, but let's say, I'm gonna apply myself to grow now to learn about what it would look like to walk in gentleness so that, so that I change. That would be good for you and for everyone. Those of us who follow Jesus in here, and not everyone will, right? Some of you came because mom said, what do I want for uh, Mother's Day? Come to church with me. And you're like, oh, curse you, Mother's Day. <laughs> well, here you are, right? You can still grow. But those of us who are following Jesus, this is how we will follow our calling, okay? This is how we will live as Jesus wants us to. If you've ever thought, I love Jesus. I just wish I knew what he wanted me to do with my life. Here it is. Improve in gentleness. That's what he wants. Okay, it's a Christ-like thing to make progress here. So we're all together in needing to make some progress, right? And the way we're going to do that is we're going to learn this morning from the disciples, from Jesus' followers. Once again, if you were here last week, you saw how they served as a negative example when they lacked humility. We'll see a, a moment here where the disciples can teach us by losing it, okay? And we're gonna observe them so we can learn about how it works when someone loses it in hopes of growing to become people who are more gentle. All right, the story that we'll consider together is recorded in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And the story begins in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 51 there. Before uh, we read it and look at it together, I want to just give you the background. Jesus and his friends are up in the northern part of the territory of God's people. They're near Samaria. Okay, this is up by the Sea of Galilee, but north from the Dead Sea. And they've been listening to Jesus teach. They've been observing him face to face. Can you imagine being with him as he healed others and loved people and gave them wise guidance for how to live? Uh, the sun is beginning to go down when Jesus tells them, it's time for us to head south. We have to make our way to Jerusalem. Now, people who know the New Testament well know that when Jesus traveled down to Jerusalem, he was going there because he knew it was time for him to die on the cross. The disciples didn't quite get this yet. But in chapter 9 of Luke, he heads down there because he knows it's time for that process in his life to sort of get underway. And he tells a few of the disciples to go off ahead in order to find them a place to stay at, uh, for that night. They, they had to walk from Samaria to Jerusalem. That's uh, like a week. And so they have to find a place to stay. And a few of the disciples go ahead and they come into a village. And that's where I want to pick up the action. This is what it says there in verse 51. Okay? 
When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is for Jesus uh, to face his future, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Uh, here's the setting of the scene. Uh, a few disciples go off ahead. They come into the village expecting what any person in the first century was right to expect, which was a hospitable reception for these travelers. Back then, if you were walking and sun was setting, it was a, a known fact that in a village, you'd open your door to travelers. Uh, these guys knock on the door that they come to. The door swings open. They explain, we're on our way from Samaria now all the way down to Jerusalem. Our master has some work to do there. Uh, can we stay the night? At the word Jerusalem, uh, the strangers' faces become stony and cold. Uh, they step back a bit. Uh, sorry, we don't have any room for you. Uh, in that you is the, the, the uh, intonation, we don't have room for your kind. You see, uh, for generations, there was a rivalry between Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, if you know the Old Testament well, you know that at one point in the history of God's people, the kingdom divided. So there was northern and southern kingdoms in Israel. The northern capital was Samaria. The southern capital was Jerusalem. And now these people who live in these different places, even though they're both God's people, they are suspicious of each other. They don't get along. They're not kind to each other at all. They are not gentle with each other. Is it a newsflash that Christians can be mean to each other? Is it? Do you know that sometimes people who have different sort of deep convictions within Christian community broadly, globally, let's say, they don't actually get along really well? You know that, right? And do you know that when other people see that, maybe who aren't really sure whether there is anything to this whole Christian faith, it actually sends a message to them that makes them a little suspicious? Okay, this is all the way back in Jesus' time. The Samaritan says, no, sorry, we don't have room for you because they heard they were going to Jerusalem. The door closes. The guys start walking back toward Jesus and the rest of the disciples who are now coming. And now they're processing this news. All right, we, apparently we don't have a place to stay tonight. They start to strategize. What are we going to say to Jesus when we get there? They come to Jesus and this is what they say. This is verse 54. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? No room for, for tonight. Burn the village to the ground. <laughs> they said, no, they were inhospitable. Can we roast them? Jesus, can we destroy them right now? That's what actually happened in their mind. They thought between hearing that it was not okay for them to stay there and getting to Jesus, they thought maybe it was a good idea. Maybe they should burn the, the whole place to the ground because they didn't give them a place to stay. Does that seem utterly outrageous to you? This is a picture of what it looks like when disciples lose it altogether. <laughs> What's it like when you lose it? Now here I want you to be honest and reflect for a moment. So for some people here, it's really hard to think about that. Because when you lose it, it's really bad. There are people who lose it and they punch holes in the walls or they throw plates 
or they scream and their, their words are terribly destructive. And this subject is really touchy. And let me tell you, listen, if that's you, let me tell you, I'm glad that you're here because you need help and here we are, all of us needing help and we want to be helpful. There are a surprising number of people who are followers of Jesus, who come to church each week, who struggle with their tempers and anger. And I know this because people share it with me. So there's no shame here, okay? If that's you, okay. You're in the right place, right? Others of you don't lose it like that, right? You're the kind of person who when you sneeze, it's like this, chew, right? <laughs> you still lose it, but you just lose it really quietly, you hold it in, right? You press it down. You're good at that, but don't you still lose it in a way? Uh, it may not be outwardly that aggressive or violent for now, but it is inside for you. And what we all need is to be able to pause and reflect on what's happening when that is going on for us. Not so we can beat up on ourselves, but so we can grow. Agreed? Okay. So these disciples have in their minds some thoughts that make their idea that they should burn the village down seem reasonable to them. And if we can see what's happening in their minds as they're losing it, I think we'll be able to learn for us too. And so here, here's what I've got for you. I've got for you three thoughts that are in their minds, and, and I've put them in terms of mathematics, okay? This is the mathematics of losing it. All right, can we be creative like that? Right? Can we or not? I have a degree in professional physics. I want to use it a little bit, or at least feel like I am. So mathematics. Okay. You're, what, what, what's he talking about? Have I, has he lost his mind? No. Stay with me. Here's the first equation that is in their mind as they're losing it. Desire equals deserve. I want it, so I deserve it. It should be mine. When you drop the distinction between what you desire and what you deserve as if they're the same, you put yourself on a very dangerous road. When you believe that as soon as you want something, you also have a right to it, as if desire and deserve are exactly the same thing, you have virtually guaranteed that at some point you are going to completely lose it, either outwardly or inwardly. It's all about your expectations and what you tell yourself is your right. Picture it. The disciples here know you can't stay here as they're walking back, but we want to stay there. Now they get here to Jesus and in their minds, their wants are the same things as what they deserve. And only then does it make sense that their lives should come before the other lives there. Not even their lives, just a comfortable place to stay. Desire and deserve are different. And as long as you go on telling yourself that they're the same, you will constantly find yourself erupting in anger when you go, don't get what you want. Can you see yourself doing that? Can someone say, yeah, I see myself doing that? You need to keep in mind the difference. Now, it's easy to see in the disciples' case that this first equation uh, combines with their strategy, which is to destroy the ones who didn't give them what they want, uh, to reveal this second equation going on in their minds. And every time this is in your mind, you are also in a bad place. They believe I am greater than you in relationship to the people in the village. Uh, just to review, if you're not in fourth grade math anymore, the mouth of the duck goes toward the quantity that's bigger. All right, see it up there? How else could they believe 
that their discomfort should mean that everyone in that village should die than if they looked at themselves and simply said, we are more important than they are. And maybe, probably you've never wished that another person or a group should altogether be eradicated because they didn't give you what you wanted. But the truth about every moment that you are erupting in anger and you're not walking gently, if you could freeze it and take a look at it, you would see that you're behaving as if you are more important than the person that you're losing it on. As if what you want matters more than what they want. As if what you need comes before what they need. As if your desires, your wishes, your agenda is, it has superiority over theirs. And that's what's happening with the disciples. And I would say that each time you find yourself uh, being ungentle, in that moment you're behaving as if you are more important than the person that you are unloading on. Can you see that for you too? Yeah. Now I would say that whether a person has faith or not, uh, every explosive eruption of anger in people and in groups of people and you could do this historically. You could look at the origins of the horrendous things that people have done against each other in wars or in the name of God, as well as things that happen between you and the neighbor that lives next door to you. Uh, you could see these two ideas operative in all of those uh, events where anger is coming forward. This third one is specific to Christ followers. And this part is ugly. In this moment, these disciples have decided because they believe that what they desire is what they deserve and because they're behaving as if they're more important than others, they've decided that the way that it works with Jesus is that Jesus can be added to their agenda against others as if, and here's the third equation, for them, it is me plus Jesus. That is, for them, Jesus has become an instrument or a tool to add into their arsenal so that they have some more weapons against the people who haven't given them what they think they deserve, who are less important than they are. And friends, let me tell you this. Whenever a Christian erupts in anger in an ugly and an unsavory way, whether it's their spouse or their children or a neighbor, they are representing the name of Jesus before others as if the way it works for them is that Jesus is an instrument or tool on their side against others. And people see that and it says something profoundly negative when they see it. Do you know that? I found a news article on the BBC website that was published uh, 10 years ago now. Uh, it was under the, the heading, Fight Erupts in Jerusalem Church. Uh, the article begins with this line, Israeli police had to break up a fist fight that erupted between Greek and Armenian Orthodox clergymen at one of Christianity's holiest sites. This happened 10 years back. Does anybody else remember when this happened? The reason I remember it is when I heard it, I felt embarrassed and I went online and I saw a video of the fight on YouTube. This is the holiest site for Christians. It's the... It's the church building in Jerusalem where many Christians believe the body of Jesus is actually buried. They built a, a church around that tomb. There are the Armenian priests devoted to Jesus, worshiping him at the site of the tomb. And the other priests believe they're spending too long. And so one man kicks another man down. And then he kicks back. And then people get their phones out and start to video it. And they start slugging each other in their robes. And it's 
It's actually Palm Sunday. You know when they give you the palms in some churches? Those work well for hitting police. You can giggle. This is so horrendous. The, the worshipers are beating the police back with their palm fronds. This is not gentle. And right underneath the article, there's a place for readers to make their comments. And this is the first comment. Wake up, humanity. This is another example of the stupidity of religious faith. Muslims, Christians, everyone is wrong. Get over it and devote your energy to reality. It's just true that people are watching. And what they want to know is this good news that Christians talk about. Is it true? The Jesus that I've heard about who loves you and loves everyone, is that real? Is it true that if you follow Jesus, he gives you a brand new start and he gives you a heart that is soft instead of a stony heart so that you begin to become the kind of person in the world that the world needs? Is that true or not? And when a fight happens in a church over spending too long before the tomb of Jesus, you see in the fists that fly this belief that it's me plus Jesus against anybody else. And it is terrible for the person who's doing it. It's terrible for the people who are suffering from it. But worst of all, it's terrible because it doesn't make Jesus visible. It makes a lie visible. And what you were made for and what I was made for is to walk through life in a way that we make Jesus visible. And we can only do that when we walk gently. Now, let me tell you, this is absolutely sure. I'm absolutely sure of this. Listen, if you walk in the way that makes Jesus visible, it's the best kind of life for you. It is. It's the kind of life where you have plenty of power, but instead of lashing out, you learn how to restrain your power and then you move along gently and beautifully and majestically like a broad and deep river. It's wonderful and it's good for you. And the life where you're walking gently, like Jesus says, walk like this, walk with me, is the life where you become approachable, where people are free to come to you. And that's what you were made for, to have people come to you. People in school, people at home, people at work, to be the kind of open individual that people can come to because they know you're safe. Even though you're strong, you're not dangerous, they can come to you and then you can use your strength for them. That's what you were made for. And, and the life where you're walking in gentleness is a life where you become and live as a friendly person. Instead of erupting and going crazy every time you don't get what you want, you're able to let that go and be friendly to the people around you. The way that you will do this is when you say no to the mathematics of losing it and say, I can desire something and maybe I don't deserve it. And if I don't get it, I'll be okay. I can look at the people around me and I am done with that foolish, immature idea that I'm more important than everyone else. I'm not. And Jesus, he's not my tool. I'm his beloved son or daughter. And I get to walk with this lover of my soul and the souls of all people. When you do that, you'll be on the path of gentleness. And that will be the very best thing for you. That's the first thing why I say, please learn to walk gently. But then listen, it will be so good for the people around you. I think again, I asked this at the beginning, if there was someone who made Christ visible to you in your life, can you think of someone who's strong and gentle? Those people are good for you and you can be good for others like that. You can. Every one of you can. 
Um, you have all the strength you need to do it. Don't ever believe the lie that you're just altogether weak. No, own the strength that God has given you and then restrain it and be open and then you will be that person who shows Jesus to others. And then that brings me really to this third thought, which is the central thought for me as your pastor at this church. It is that this group of people gathered here at Renaissance. And by the way, this includes those of you who are just visiting. You're a part of this. And when you go your own way, you will still be a part of this potential movement. We can help the world see Jesus. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to be the people who let him be known. And the way we will do that is when we walk gently as Jesus walked. And maybe you have it in your mind now, and some of you will, uh, that this sounds good and all, but the truth about you is you lost it yesterday and you're embarrassed and it's probably gonna happen again tonight or tomorrow. And I know that one of the things that causes deep guilt and regret in people like us, good people who come to places like this, is the shame and memories of losing it. All right, so if that's you, I'm gonna ask you, don't push that out just yet. Don't, let it be there. I want you to know that you're right there with the disciples saying to Jesus, hey, uh, do, do you want us to, you know, rain fire down on them? That's you. And, and what Jesus does there is what Jesus means to do for all of us. And I want you to see this clearly, okay? And, and listen, I'm gonna be honest with you now, all right? I'm gonna be honest with you because that's my job. Look at what Jesus does. This is verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. That's verse 56. Now, it's good that there's two verses there. Let me tell you about the first verse. Rebuke means sternly correct. And I want you to understand that when we're mean, and when we're saying things that we regret, and we're using our power in a destructive way, Jesus does not love that. He hates it. And if we'll be with him and be honest, he will rebuke us for that. It's true. And I, I don't stand above you. I don't. I stand with you. I have moments I regret. What we all need to see first is that with Jesus, who is always perfectly gentle, who always restrained the power that was his because he was God. He had all the power in the universe. Who always was approachable as God. Think about that. The Bible says, whether you believe this or not, the Bible says that Jesus was equal to God and he humbled himself and he came to walk with us. That means he became approachable. And he was friendly, even to his enemies. When we are ugly in our eruptive anger, Jesus rebukes us. That's the first thing I want you to see. But then the fact that there's verse 56 there, which is, it says, they, then they, went on to another village, means that James and John were still invited to keep walking with him. And this is also true. And to me, this is brilliant and beautiful. I have some friends who stopped coming to church because of how ashamed they were of their problems with anger. I hope some of you are friends who are here, even though you're ashamed of that. Please listen to me. Jesus still wants you in his company. He wants you to be with him on the path. He does. And his rebuke, listen, always includes forgiveness and his empowering presence so that you can walk with him in the way that you're meant to for the next step. And that's all he ever asks, the next step. 
And so please listen to me. You are forgiven because God is gracious through and through. I can put it like this. God forgives us in Christ because Jesus decided to be gentle. He restrained his power. He became approachable. And in the supreme act of friendliness, he died for his enemies. He's done that for you. And now, if you will choose to have faith in him, and it is a choice, it's not a feeling, it's a decision. If you would right now decide, all right, I want to get on the path with Jesus. I want to trust him. I want his hands to be the ones that carry me. I want to acknowledge that I don't have the strength to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling which is mine in Christ. I want him to carry me on this walk. If you will do that, then he will carry you and he will give you all the power that you need to walk worthy of this calling. And by the way, there isn't a single person in here who doesn't need to do that. So if you've never done that, you should do that this morning. Uh, you should do that in your heart right now. You should think, now's the time for me to pray and ask God to carry me. I need it. I need his hands to, to bear me up and carry me on this path. And, and if you do, then listen, you get to go to the next village with him like the disciples did here. Even James and John are free to come. And do you know what? Listen, the next village needs you. Every one of you. Every village needs you. The village of your family, your kids, your friends, your parents, your neighbors, this town, the people in your office, they need us. And they don't need us, but they need to see Jesus. They need us to make Jesus visible. And so give your life to him. His love for you is dependable. And then you will go on the journey with him. Let's ask him to carry us now. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you that you're devoted to us in a way that is beyond our imagining. Your gentleness is for us. Uh, in Christ, you've given yourself to save us. We thank you for that. And we ask simply now that every heart in here would be fully surrendered to you. That those of us who've never before come to faith would choose now to ask you to be our Lord and walk with you. And then those of us who have been embarrassingly angry, that we'd leave that behind. And that we'd accept your forgiveness and that we'd come with you to the next village, wherever that is. I ask simply that the whole church here, Renaissance Church, would become a place that more and more makes you visible. Wherever we live our lives, would you use us to help people know you? And then in that process, would you help us know you so that we get to become your followers in joy and in freedom? And we ask for this in the name of Jesus who is gentle in his perfection. Amen.